Has it occurred to you that the systems we live by are not designed to get results? We pay for procedures instead of outcomes, focusing on emergencies rather than preventing disease and living a healthy lifestyle. For over 25 years, I've taken care of Olympians, Paralympians, A-list actors, and Fortune 1000 companies. If I do not get results, they do not get results. I realized that while powerful people who control the system want to keep the status quo, if I were to educate the masses, you would demand change. So I'm taking the gloves off and going after the systems as they are. Join me on my mission to create a new tomorrow as I chat with industry experts, elite athletes, thought leaders, and government officials about how we activate our vision for a better world. We may agree and we may disagree, but I'm not backing down. I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I am your host, Ari Gronich, and I am back with Dr. David Gruder. He is a 12-time award-winning integrative psychologist. And more than, more than that, he's an organizational psychologist. He has done some amazing things. I call him the guru of gurus, the mentor of mentors. And uh, welcome back, David. I am so glad that we're able to, to do this again and provide so much more of your wisdom to the audience. It's a pleasure to be back with you, Ari. Awesome, thank you so much. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got started in organizational psychology. Why did you choose that field specifically? And what it is that you're looking to create in this new tomorrow, a new world? Mm -hmm. So how I got into the field kind of starts at, at age 16. Um, I was expected to become a professional musician and was certainly on track for that. I had started performing as a child in a lot of different capacities. And so I was not being asked, what university are you going to? I was being asked, what conservatory are you going to? And by the time I was 16, in some way that is still kind of magical and mysterious to me, I knew that even though music was and is my first love, psychology was my calling. And I also knew that I was called to have impact on elevating society, not just on individuals. And so in my doctoral program, I selected a doctoral program that was going to enable me to get a PhD that was split between clinical psychology, which is the deep inner work, and organizational development psychology, which is the interpersonal, the, the work of, of what happens in groups and systems. And so that was my best way to equip myself to elevate leaders and cultures throughout my career. That is that's awesome. You know, one of the things that I say a lot is we made this shit up and we can make it up better. Yeah. I think that people forget in many cases that the society as it is, is a figment of our imagination. We created it. We created the buildings. We created the design of the houses. We created the design of the societies. And when something is suboptimal, not up to performance standards, right? Then, it's kind of incumbent upon us to recreate it in a different, better way. But we have organized around our creation. Mm 
and there's a psychological element to this is how we live and this is how we're always going to live and this is how we should live and we want to go back to the way that it was right or the way that we think it should be how do you break through that kind of organizational in whether it's in corporations and governments in whatever or in families or in yourself even the organizational how you've organized your own being what do you what would be some some tools some ways that people could think about this a little bit differently so they'd be open to the possibilities oh, great question i agree with you completely we have massive imaginations as human beings we're incredible uh, natural compulsive storytellers we we make up stories left and right and so yes everything we see around us is of our creation we invented a an imaginary thing called a, a corporation corporate structure we invented an imaginary thing called money i mean we could go down a whole long list of things that we invented and then those things started being or seeming real to us so the tail's wagging the dog in that sense and uh so where where this starts is with a personal ownership piece and a and a societal ownership piece so the personal ownership piece for me has to do with self responsible uh, responsibility i and i alone am responsible for the parts of reality that i pay attention to for the stories i make up about what those parts of reality that i'm paying attention to mean for the emotions that the stories i tell myself about the parts of reality that i'm attending to activate in me and for the words and actions that the emotions i'm having about the stories i'm telling myself about the parts of reality that i'm paying attention to have on those to whom i'm in relationship or with whom i'm in relationship that to me is the essence of spiritual responsibility so that's the personal side of it there's a societal side of it too uh, should i go on to that piece yeah, or did you wanna... yes please so, so the societal responsibility part has to do with uh with the intersection of freedom and responsibility which we seem to have forgotten collectively as a society even though i know certain individuals who haven't forgotten that but as a society we seem to have forgotten it uh you know there are there are lots of people who are taking the position essentially that the most important thing in society is freedom and others are saying the most important thing in society is responsibility social responsibility and both groups are equally and oppositely insane because of what they've forgotten because freedom without responsibility is narcissism and responsibility without freedom is tyranny and when we have forgotten that we invented society and that society or society's rules are not meant to be the boss of us they are meant to be in service to uh our evolution as a species and our stewardship of a planet when we forget those things then we have everything upside down the same thing goes with patriotism by the way you know i view patriotism as 
uh, nested dolls. You know, those Russian or Ukrainian dolls where there's a doll within a doll within a doll? Mm-hmm. Well, this is something else that we've forgotten uh, as, a, as a planet collectively. Again, individuals are exceptions to this, where we, we take a position that my country comes first. And, you know, whatever impact that has on your country, well, that's your problem. Well, you know, patriotism, if it's integrated and if it's sane, it's nested. So my first responsibility is to stewarding the planet. My second responsibility is to humanity. Inside of that, I have patriotism to my country, to my religious or spiritual groups, to my communities, to my business, et cetera, et cetera. And inside of that is my patriotism to my, uh, to my family and my, and my primary love relationship and to myself. When we, when we are in either or thinking that says, I have to sacrifice one of those nested dolls for the other uh, nested dolls, uh, or, uh, or in order to attend to one nested doll, I have to be willing to sacrifice the rest. I'm engaging in insane societal thinking. You know, that, that's really interesting. I think a lot of people believe that they have to focus the exact opposite of what you just said, right? Self, family, city, county. I mean, it goes out and then eventually maybe we'll get to the world at large, right? Or humanity at large and, and so forth. Um, I never quite understood the idea of patriotism. And I'll tell you why. Patriotism to me has always been the same thing as being a white supremacist or a, um, well, saying to somebody, I'm proud to be white, I'm proud to be black, I'm proud to be blue, I'm proud to be green. It's something that you have no control over where you were born, right? So you're born in, in you know, Latvia versus being born in the US, so all of a sudden you must be a lower form of human because you were born there, but you had no, no choice in that. Just like you must be, if you're black, you must be a lower form of a human being because of your color, even though you had no particular choice in that, and it really relates nothing to character. So how do we evolve beyond the label of well, any of the labels, but beyond the label of patriotism, beyond the label of I'm proud because of what I am versus what I do. Right. Oh my gosh, there are so many layers to this question. You know, the, let me start with what you said about uh, in this narrative of a, a person saying, I, I I can't help where I was born or the color of my skin. Even that is open to question. You know, there are metaphysical belief systems that, uh, that say that we do choose our life circumstances. So the humility piece with this is to remember that all belief systems, every belief system this planet has ever seen is based on its own set of core assumptions, such as I, I chose 
where, you know, how I, the circumstances under which I was born, I didn't choose those. Core assumptions that are neither verifiable nor unverifiable, that can neither be proved nor disproved. And when we forget that, we move straight into arrogance. My belief system is the right belief system because after all, all of the other beliefs that my core assumptions are based on make sense with my core assumptions. So my belief system must be right. Well, it, does, it doesn't must be right. That's, that's, that's erroneous thinking, that's arrogant thinking. And the reason that's important to the question that you are asking is because when I approach these kinds of, of questions of paradigm, of belief system from a place of humility, then I get to see everyone else as my brothers and my sisters. I get to see people who have different life experiences for mine that have lessons and wisdom to teach me just as I have certain life experiences that might have wisdom to offer others. And it's not a competition over who has more wisdom for whom. It is this delicious opportunity. Life is this delicious opportunity to compare notes and learn from each other and discover more about the bigger picture from the smaller slices that we each see individually. When we have that kind of attitude, we are able to sit in the both and of relishing our own identity, you know, uh, relishing the unearned privileges and the unearned targeting that we get to experience as a result of the life that we have been born into. And we get to relish um, the, the diversity of humanity. So instead of it being one or the other, that I'm, I'm either only identified through the color of my skin, or I refuse to recognize that my skin has a, has a particular tint to it. How about both and? That's a, that's a really interesting um, point of view. I, I think that what that does for people when they adopt that kind of a point of view is it allows for an openness and a willingness to understand another's point of view. And uh, I'll give you an example of, of an experience that I had about 10 years or so ago. Uh, I had a roommate who was a Palestinian Muslim woman and I am a Latino Jew <laughs> who I, you know, I call myself a mutt because uh, I have pieces of, I think, everything inside of me. So I've never actually identified as a label, but uh, I've definitely got a lot of that Jewish culture and Latino culture in me. And so she and I would have these amazing conversations about the Palestinian and Jewish an Israeli conflict, the Muslim and Jewish conflict. And, uh, and, and, you know, what was fascinating is her cousin was an attorney who worked for Hamas, PLO, and the government of Palestine and did negotiations with Israel. Mm -hmm. So we actually had an, a, an opportunity in that, in those conversations to create some real change because 
What I didn't know is she would call him up after we had a conversation and say, okay, you might want to talk to them about this. You might want to, right? You might want to have these kinds of conversations with when, when doing the negotiating. And she was like a sister to me. We didn't have that feeling of being separate, it's even with our separate thoughts and our separate opinions. We didn't agree on everything for sure, but she was like a sister. We considered ourselves each other family. And that allowed for so much healing within both of us from what we preconceived as in What's the word that they use in divorce? Um, irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences, yes. So what we would consider to be irreconcilable differences became very reconcilable, very um, common for us to, to get uh, to a level of understanding where we were the same, where we were different, and how, the, how that happened. And... I find that what you're saying is that that kind of a conversation when doing peace talks would be so beneficial. Yeah. To, to have that kind of a conversation with the people who disagree with us. And that's whether it's, you know, in th this day and age is the mask versus the no mask, right? Or the hug versus no hug, social distance versus come together. You know, if, if we're able to have these kinds of conversations, don't you think we would get along way much better in society? Not only would we get along much better, but the quality of our problem solving would skyrocket. Because when people are in their own silos, you know, when they're, uh, when they're in, in what is in some circles uh, the circles that study propaganda, they call them information bubbles. They, they're only getting a reflection of their own beliefs coming back at them from social media and other internet sources because of how the, the algorithms are actually set up on the internet where the algorithms are deciding for us what we're going to get exposed to what products we're going to get exposed to, what perspectives we're going to get uh, exposed to. And when we're in information bubbles, that's a prescription for divisiveness because in an information bubble, because all I'm seeing is my own reflection, it's easy to imagine that I must be right. Whereas when we're given these, these sacred opportunities to really know and interact with people who have very different life experiences and backgrounds than we do, then there's a, a level of richness that expands our vision of ourselves, of our world, and of what solutions could look like. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's really cool. I, I was watching a video recently and it was uh, a gentleman who, what they, that, you know, they say infiltrated the KKK. He was a black gentleman, but he, he didn't infiltrate. He just started having conversations with one of the grand Puba, yes. I don't know what they called them, grandmasters um, of, of the KKK. And, yep. and over the years, they became very close friends, began to trust each other because they got to know each other. Yes. 
then I believe that it's somewhere around 60, 70 different members of the KKK ended up denouncing that belief system. Mm -hmm. They still liked the camaraderie that came from being part of the group, right? But they denounced what the group was focused on, I guess you could say. And it's an interesting form of psychology. You get to learn about somebody or about a different culture and all of a sudden it opens your eyes and heart, right? They say that, that the cure to racism is traveling. What do you think of that statement? Yes. The cure to centrism, any kind of ethnocentrism, is to be exposed to other cultures. The conversations that I have with my fellow Americans who have not traveled extensively outside of the United States are profoundly different from the conversations that I have with my fellow Americans who have traveled extensively. And by travel, I don't mean that they've, that somebody has gone to another country and then they've stayed in American hotels and eaten American foods and gotten tours around whatever that location is by American tour guides. That's not traveling, that's uh, the pretending to travel. I'm talking about the real deal. And when we're exposed to other cultures, if we have any kind of teachability in us at all, we can't help but be impacted. We can't help but have our worldview expanded. When people are very, very ethnocentric, whatever the, the centrism is about, American-centric, let's say, because they've never traveled outside of the United States, they may not have even traveled to all the different sections of our country because our country is a bunch of mini cult countries culturally you know the the culture in the deep south is not the same as the culture in new york or as the culture in california etc cetera, etc cetera. um the the blindness that people end up having they don't know it i i call it a spell most people in my experience are under a cultural spell they don't know how to see that they're under a spell and therefore they don't know that there's something to get free of. And it's incredibly damaging. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I used to, I, I, I'm very good with uh, accents, right? And I used to be able to tell if somebody was from Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, <laughs> Manhattan, which New York accent it was that they had. Just yeah. could tell if somebody was from Texas or if they were from Tennessee, right, from, from their accent. And what you just said is so true. We are such a diverse culture of many different countries. You know, this, this whole thing about us being a melting pot. And so here's my question to you. If we're a melting pot of all of these different cultures, how do we convince or shift the perspective of American to a community of melting pot people. So when, you know, when we hear people say, if you don't like it, leave it. Or if you're, you know, if you think differently than I do, you should leave the country or whatever those, those statements are that people make. How do we shift that so that people understand that this melting pot 
and the differences in culture is what makes us great, not what weakens us? A great question again. I, I think that what will help a lot is understanding the pendulum swing in the immigrant mindset that we've undergone over the last 80 years or so, 70 years, somewhere in that, in that time frame. The there was a time when the immigrant mindset, the, the dominant immigrant mindset, was you come to the United States and you leave your old country, your old culture behind, and you assimilate into being an American. And what that looked like back then, and I grew up in a family like this, was that you, you gave up the language of the country that you came, to, uh, came from, and you gave up its, its cultural traditions, and, uh, and you, you tried to blend into some notion of what being an American was. And now we are at the other end of that pendulum swing where we have people that have no desire, some people, not, not all people, but some people have no desire to assimilate into American society. They want the experience of being in this country while staying fully identified with whatever the culture, country, or languages that they came from. And I think both of those perspectives have massive blind spots. We have to have a common bond, a common sense of purpose and mission. And that common bond is in the context of, of the United States would be uh, the, the original version of the American dream, the version of the American dream that birthed this country, not the delusional version of the American dream that it was replaced with in the 1950s. And the diversity piece of that is that I, inside of this common bond that I share with you, I relish my uniqueness as an individual, as a culture, um, my ability to speak multiple languages, God forbid, like most Europeans are multilingual. Uh, most Americans are not multilingual. Uh, and in Europe, there's no, there's no fear. When I'm, in, when I'm working in Switzerland, there is no fear that I encounter among the Swiss, for example, that they're losing their culture because they're having conversations in French, in German, in Italian and in the one of the native versions of Swiss language, which is called Romanche. There, there's no feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm suddenly not Swiss because I'm speaking all of these languages. Uh, there's, there's a both and about that. There's pride in being Swiss and in what the Swiss culture collectively stands for. And at the same time, there's a joy in expressing a flavor of that being, that version of being Swiss. We're missing that in this country. We're missing the both and. We're in a war between blind acculturation or a refusal, a refusal to acculturate. It's got to be both. That is so true. You know, my, my grandfather came over to this country when he was 12 years old, I believe, by himself on a boat through Ellis Island, became a multi-multi-millionaire, lost it all, gained it all, lost it all, gained it all. But he spoke 11 languages, 11. Austria, Hungarian, 
um, you know, Yiddish, Hebrew, Spanish, French. I mean, he spoke German, a lot of languages because, you know, as a salesman, that was his job. But even, even before he was 12, growing up in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he was initially taught, and this was in maybe the late 1800s, early 1900s, he was taught these languages as just you're being born, you're growing up and you're learning. My parents, on the other hand, my dad who speaks German and Spanish and English and Yiddish, right? But he, they only spoke Spanish if they didn't want us to know what they were saying. <laughs> right? And so I was, I took a lot of years of Spanish, but I never learned how to speak it fluently or fluidly, I should say. You know, same with Hebrew. I took Hebrew school. But when I went to Israel, I couldn't speak Hebrew for anything based on how they speak it on the streets, right? Absolutely. So I felt, and every time I've traveled, I have felt so um, culturally inept because of my lack of being able to speak another language. So what you just said is, is so true. And, uh, and I really appreciate you saying that because when you speak somebody else's language, you get to know their culture much better, right? Especially if you could dream in their language. So uh, you and I came from very similar families. Both sides of my family came from what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire. One side of my family came from the Austrian side, the other side of the family came from the Hungarian side. And my parents as well, uh, both of whom were born in the United States, it's their parents who came over from, uh, from Europe. Uh, my parents, when they didn't want my brother and me to understand what they were talking about, that's when they talked Yiddish. And when I first started traveling extensively internationally in the 1970s, what I discovered uh, to my great delight were that was that the two fastest ways to access the heart of a country that I was in were to speak its language and eat its food <laughs> and hang out with people who were from that country rather than go looking for other Americans to hang out with. And, uh, and I, I got huge enrichment from the willingness to be a clumsy imbecile in another language because what I found very rapidly was that most people in the countries that I visited were very appreciative and forgiving of my inability to speak their language simply because I was authentically attempting to speak their language. And it opened up all kinds of doors. That is, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, you know, when I was in Greece during the 2004 Paralympics, we learned a lot of Greek because I was going to be there for a month and I had to learn it. I had to learn what, what they were saying on the, on the trail, you know, the trains and, mm -hmm. and so on. And some of the words that are not appropriate to say, right? So they had us with these uh, butt packs as part of our uniform, but wow. it, if you called them a fanny pack, well, you know, you were, you were saying something untort because fanny means something different in European culture than it does That's right. our culture. And so learning those things so that you don't offend, 
but you also learn, oh, well, that's an odd name for that particular body part, you know? <laughs> um, it, it's an interesting thing. And I would go to this, uh, this restaurant after a 10, 12 hour day. And this one gentleman was from Boston, but from, well, he was from Greece, had lived in Boston, came back to Greece. So he spoke a few languages and he and I would sit and chat for an hour, two hours, three hours a night and just get to know each other. And it was interesting because when I was there, they had the Algerians coming in to the country and doing all of the cheap labor for building the stadiums and, and so on for the Olympics was such an interesting thing for me because we have in this country what we call the Mexicans, right? It's not Mexican people, it's the Mexicans that will do your cheap labor. And I was thinking, you know, every country's gotta have, is gonna have immigrants that they call <laughs> taking their jobs and doing this, this kind of thing. And, and I think about it and I go, well, why wouldn't, why weren't the Greeks doing the job? Because it was a lot easier, it would have been a lot easier to hire the people who were from there, right? So what is it about us as people in general that think that outsourcing and doing these kinds of things is such a wrong thing versus allowing people who want to work in something that they're good at and like doing and then we get to do the things that we like doing, right? So how can we balance these two pieces so that they make more sense for people? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important to understand with those particular dimensions that, uh, that there are certain people who, who look on certain kinds of jobs as being beneath them there are other people who might not look on a particular job as being beneath them, but the job pays a lower amount per hour than the amount of money that they want to be making per hour. And so they won't take the job because it, they think it pays too little. And so when we've got, uh, and, and we've seen this throughout cultures around the world, I mean, the, the, the Japanese, for example, had the same kind of attitude toward Koreans for a long time, just as a for instance. Uh, you, you name the culture, there, there has been this kind of, we're, we're, the, we're the real people of our country, and then we have these people that really aren't us, but we've got to bring them in because they'll do what we need doing uh, because they're willing to, and they're willing to get paid less than we're willing to get paid, uh, and we've got more important things to do. That, that kind of, of um, I mean, it's a form of elitism, obviously. It's also partly propelled, though, by, uh, in the United States, by the old immigrant mentality. I mean, you know, my parents, like, uh, like you're talking about, when, when my grandparents came to the States, they came penniless. They, they gave up everything in their prior lives. And so my, my parents both grew up in tenements. They grew up in the slums. Um, because their parents could barely make ends meet because they were taking jobs that were the, the dregs of society kinds of jobs in order to make enough money to not be deported, you know, enough money to, uh, 
because they became they all became American citizens, but they didn't have the education to or, or the entrepreneurial spirit if they didn't have the education to really succeed in in high level ways. So they put all of their energy into making sure that their children got the kind of education in the United States that they didn't have so their children could create better lives for themselves than their parents could. And my parents in turn had in turn had that same idea that they wanted my brother and me to have a better life than they had. Uh, so we were intergenerationally we were on an upward spiral in the belief in the American dream. You know, that's a good point. I think every generation is designed as a stepladder, right? And if we continually move up generation to generation to generation up that ladder, we can create something that's incredible. We just have to be willing to shift ladders when that ladder stops, right? So one ladder is 10 feet. We've got to be on a 20 foot ladder to get past so we can switch. And right now we're, we're on this trajectory of people who want to go backwards down the ladder again, right? And people who want to go forwards. We have this big confusion. I think it's a confusion. Um, although a lot of people are very sure of themselves when it comes to progression versus regression and you know progressive and liberal has gotten a bad name conservative has gotten a bad name and those kinds of things so if we're ever going to change and create a new tomorrow what are the elements that we have to look at in order to to start moving forward on and and keep going up the ladder versus regressing down mm -hmm. well I think first of all, we have in our society a massive pandemic of learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the belief, nothing I do makes a difference. The negative things I do don't really impact other people. The positive things I do don't really impact other people. So all, uh, you know, all, all I'm left with is uh, let, me, let me live for today as much as I can and you know, I probably won't be alive in 10 years, so who cares? And uh, so there's a, a nihilistic, you know, self-serving kind of undercurrent in parts of our society. There's a learned helplessness undercurrent in parts of our society. Uh, there is a, 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 a mentality in other parts of our society that says, well, we, we've achieved things that other people haven't achieved. So uh, we're entitled to look down our noses at those people who haven't achieved what we think they should have achieved uh, at, the, at that point in their lives or in, in their generations of being American. The first stage, I think, is about spotting the spell. It's about waking up to the ways in which our minds, uh, the, there's a battle for our brains that's going on. And waking up to the ways that our minds are being hijacked or that attempts to hijack our minds are occurring on a daily basis across the political and ideological spectrums. I think we need to align with our fundamental design. You know, there, um, there, there are certain qualities that unite all of us 
as a species, as humanity. We all have the, the drive to be who we truly are. It's our drive for authenticity. We all have the drive to bond with others. It's our drive for connection. And we all have the drive to influence the world around us. And that's our drive for impact. When we forget that our basic nature is about living at the intersection of authenticity, connection, and impact, we are susceptible to being manipulated and propagandized by stuff out there that's, gonna, that's trying to tell us that other things are more important than those things. So we have to align with our design or realign with our design. We have to strengthen our underpinnings. We have to strengthen our teachability, our, our personal well-being, our health, our, our self-care, our discernment, our ability to uh, to recognize those kinds of subtle thought processes, critical thinking, if you will, uh, rather than this ridiculous, uh, you know, either or um, polarized thinking. Uh, we have to learn how to recognize the promptings from our deepest selves. We have to learn how to recognize wisdom that comes from whatever source we individually happen to feel connected with that we are a part of and that's larger than us. Um, we, we need to learn how to harvest profound blessings and gifts from undesired and even unacceptable life experiences. We need all of those underpinnings in order to function uh, in thrival rather than survival as individuals. We need to learn how to have right relationship with our power rather than to either run from power because the role models we see around power are, are modeling really screwed up dysfunctional versions of power, so we want nothing to do with power, or to pursue dysfunctional power. And <clears throat> we need to be really good at facilitating repair and evolution in whatever spheres of influence we're called to have positive impact. If we're all doing that, if we're all busy being do, uh, busy doing those kinds of things, then our differences become cherished and our common bond becomes sacred. And when we get that way of functioning as a society, the way we're going to function is vastly different from how we're functioning today. Yeah, you know, there was a number of things that you said there that, that I really enjoyed hearing. And one of the things that, you know, my, my mentor, I call him uh, Buckminster Fuller would say is that we have to get over the auspicious and this is a paraphrase. So don't quote me on it, but uh, it's paraphrased. Sure. Get over the auspicious notion that we have to work to be of value. And I go back when I hear that phrase in my head, I go back to people like Thomas Jefferson, Leonardo uh, da Vinci, uh, Plato, you know, like I go back to the people that we consider great people of history. And I think, were they valuable in their lifetime or were they valuable in their death? Were they valuable as human beings because they created what they created or because they existed to begin with. And when I think of this notion, I, I think of 
all the technology that we have created and all of the technology that we can create. And we've, we've seemed to placed so much emphasis of value on how much a person, person works versus what a person contributes and the results that we get. We, we do this in medicine all the time. A doctor gets paid for procedures, not for results, not for what they create, but for what they treat. And so to me, I want to go backwards a little bit to a time in which we don't have the technology. Now, this is, this is just a utopian theory at the moment, right? I believe that we have borrowed, with all the technology that we have and we consume, we've borrowed our imaginations from other people and thereby have left our own imagination by the wayside. And that's going to become more and more evident in the next couple generations, right? So how do we stop borrowing other people's imaginations? And I call that, you know, game boxes, you know, any kind of game boxes and internets and TVs and so on. When we had more time on our hands, we did more with the time that we had. I don't believe that people are lazy. I believe that people have been conditioned to cut their imaginations and thereby not create and be authentic in who they could be. So how do we get back to being our authentic selves when we have to eat and we have to live and we have to pay to be valuable? Adam, let me answer at a macro level and a micro level. At the macro level, we are culturally still in a phase with technology where we are intoxicated with it. So it's a new toy, a new set of toys, and we're drunk. We're drunk on, on the new toy. <clears throat> and so, of course, the toy becomes the boss of us, and we relinquish our thought process to this new toy. Uh, developmentally in a society, those phases are eventually outgrown where we, do, we ultimately develop right relationship with new innovations rather than be intoxicated by them. Um, at, the, at the micro level, I think it's crucial for each one of us to discover and move into alignment with whatever our, our deepest sense of life purpose happens to be. Because when we're living in alignment with our purpose, our creativity comes back online and things like technology become what they're meant to be in the first place, which is tools to propel our creativity and our imagination rather than substitutes for being creative and imaginative. And I love that you brought up Bucky Fuller. One of my favorite of many quotes of his is the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And we've got the tail wagging the dog here. We're looking at, at trying to figure out how to predict the future so that we can be ready for it rather than asking ourselves, what is the future we want to create together? The, the future we want to live in. What is the world we want to live in and the world we want to leave to our children and our grandchildren? 
Um, we, we need to stop predicting it and start inventing it. And of course, like you said, in order to do that, we have to reown our creativity. Absolutely. You know, I'd like you to maybe expand on that a little bit, these ideas, because this is really what, what my book and this podcast is about, is how do we go about with tools, with techniques, with training, with mindset, how do we go about taking this world that we created, right? And saying, okay, the way I look at it is this is not optimal. We can create it better. So how do we create something that is more optimal for our own human growth? So let's expand on, on this for a little bit and just, I'm going to let you kind of go. Cause I know you've, you've done a lot of thinking about it. We've talked about this before. Yeah. Well, on a, on a brass tax level, we can, simply start making a habit of doing what is already being done in a more narrow way in high functioning companies in a high functioning company among other things one of the one of their one of the traditions or rituals in a high functioning company is that teams get together regularly not just once in a while they get together regularly and they ask the question what's working well and why does that matter? What positive impact does, do those things that are working well have? And then they ask a second question. What, would, what, could, we, what could be even better? What would be even better ifs? What, if we did this and that and this other thing differently, why would that matter? What positive impacts would, would the up-leveling of best practices have? And a healthy company is constantly looking at it at their best practices and saying, well, those might have been the best practices 10 years ago. And thank goodness we developed them. Today, in the middle of the COVID crisis, not so much. What, would, what, are, what, what in best practices would we invent now? That same kind of boots on the ground attitude is a equally relevant to crafting an elevated society. We need to look at what's working well and why that matters so that we will do those things more. And we need to look at the even better ifs and how different changes and improvements are going to elevate our functioning as a society. So, you know, if we're looking at, let's just say capitalism, for example, <clears throat> most people don't know that there are two versions of capitalism and one version of something else that gets called capitalism, but isn't. And most people just, you know, lump all of those things together. And so there are a lot of people in society that are viciously, fiercely anti-capitalism. Well, <clears throat> when I ask those people to tell me their version of capitalism, what they inevitably describe is what I and others who study this call sociopathic capitalism, the sociopathic version of capitalism, where I manipulate you into buying what you don't need at a price you can't afford, and I'll, I'll manipulate you so well that I'll, I'll convince you that doing that makes you happy. That's sociopathic capitalism, or I'll make profits at the expense of killing off the environment. That's sociopathic capitalism. 
<clears throat> when I ask people who are anti-capitalist what they, how they define capitalism, they invariably define sociopathic capitalism. They have no idea that there's such a thing as healthy capitalism or collaborative capitalism, the way that you and I know about where we're creating win-wins. <clears throat> and then there's a third group that defines capitalism in a way that has nothing to do with capitalism. They're defining a completely different economic system that I call debtism, which is borrowing against an uncertain future in order to prop up the illusion of a lifestyle in the present. There's nothing about capitalism that has anything to do with that. It's a completely different economic system. It has nothing to do with capitalism. So if we don't sit down and really look at what our structures really are, what is our economy based on? Well, we have an economy, just to finish up this little strand, we have an economy that's based on an assumption that, that perpetual growth is good. And most people just buy it. They buy it as an economic assumption. That's an example of a belief system that has an assumption that's neither verifiable nor unverifiable. It's neither true nor false that perpetual growth is good. What we have to have the courage to look at is what are the costs of perpetual growth? What are the prices of perpetual growth? And is there a way to continue to grow sanely because evolution is part of our makeup, but to not make growth the boss of us? What about the notion of enoughness? What about the notion of sustainability? Uh, and, and looking at growth in, the, in those uh, frames of reference. So un until we find the courage to say, we have to evaluate, reevaluate what patriotism is, what the American dream is, if, if we're in the United States, or what the dream of our country is, if we're elsewhere, what economics looks like, what happiness looks like, what growth looks like, what alignment with being stewards of a planet looks like, until we have the courage to sit down and ask these kinds of questions without getting into polarized divisive arm wrestling matches over ideological addiction, we will continue to devolve into the, the opposite of utopian future. We'll, we'll, uh, it's, it's a dystopian future that we are actually co-creating right now. And yet at the same time, everyone says, well, we don't want a dystopian future, but no, no, we're not going to look at our basic assumptions. That's nuts thinking. That's insane. That is cultural opposite of mental health as a culture. You know, I, I like, I like that you, uh, you put it that way because you know, a lot of, a lot of people I've talked to have issues sometimes just saying it like it is, you know, and the truth is, is that if you're not saying something as it is, matter of factly, then you're doing a disservice to the situation at hand, you know? And so to say something like that's insane thinking is going to cause people to say, um, I'm thinking that way and I'm not insane, right? Therefore, you must be insane for saying that. Exactly. Therefore, <laughs> you must be insane. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this interview. Stay tuned for the next episode when we resume this conversation right from where we left off. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate all you do to create a new tomorrow for yourself and those around you. 
If you'd like to take this information further and are interested in joining a community of like-minded people who are all passionate about activating their vision for a better world, go to the website, createanewtomorrow.com and find out how you can be part of making a bigger difference. I have a gift for you just for checking it out and look forward to seeing you take the leap and joining our private paid mastermind community. Until then, see you on the next episode.